And I must thank uh, the Arts Council of England, who are the principal funders of uh, Ledbury Poetry. And I would also like to uh, finish by uh, thanking our sponsors uh, for this event, uh, and that's Russell and Company Solicitors. Thank you very much. And now what I'm going to do is uh, introduce uh, Jill Abraham, who's going to be our host for this afternoon's event. Jill. Peter. Thank you, Peter, and thank you all for coming. Well, we've got a treat in store this afternoon. Uh, we have some special guests. Um, you'll hear more about them in due course. But um, my, my main guest this afternoon sounds like a lot of people. Writer, comedian, actor, director, musician, impressionist. The list goes on, all embodied in one person. Please welcome Alistair McGowan. So you're kind of a local lad. Kind of a local lad. Well, yes, actually. Uh, this is sort of halfway between the two, where I was born and where I live now. So uh, I was born in Evesham uh, and now live in, uh, in Ludlow. So um, I've probably offended everybody in Herefordshire by not mentioning anywhere in Herefordshire. But, <laughs> yeah, pretty local. Yeah, and I was here. Somebody said a while ago, a gentleman, he saw me 20 years ago when I was last here at Ledbury, uh, Ledbury Poetry Festival. So it feels very nice to be back. That was in 2002 when uh, England were being managed by Senor and Ericsson, and we were about to play a Euro 20, 2002 game, apparently, and I made sure that they finished on time so that we could all go home and watch it. Somebody said to me, do you think he'll do some impressions? <laughs> <laughs> Try and yeah. stop him, said I. <laughs> so uh, with Desert Island Poems, I normally start with how did you come to poetry? In fact, the first poem that you have chosen helps illustrate that. So. Yes, uh, I, I mean, pro proper poetry, I suppose one might say. Uh, I was very... People often talk about coming from a literary household, don't they? And uh, there were not a lot of books in my home. My, my parents were both teachers, but they were both first school teachers, primary school teachers, as we said then. So, honestly, the poems in the house were generally uh, Edward Lear and uh, Nursery Rhymes and Hilaire Belloc. And they were the first poets, really, I was aware of. And I loved Hilaire Belloc and... The chief effect of Henry King was chewing little bits of string. At last, he swallowed some which tied itself inside. That was the first thing I ever learned, and that was my first party piece. So that was my introduction to poetry. So I thought that's what poetry was, little things that rhymed, until uh, I went to Evesham High School doing my O-levels, and we were given this book, which some people may... Anybody recognise that book? No. It must have been just a Worcestershire thing that didn't come to Herefordshire. But this was, <laughs> this before, it was before it was Hereford and Worcester. But we were uh, given this, uh, and uh, one of the poets that we were asked to study in here was uh, Keats. And I just fell in love with, uh, with a lot of Keats's work, uh, Ode to Autumn, Ode to a Nightingale, and particularly the Eve of St. Agnes. So will I go straight into reading that now? Yeah, okay. Why not? So the Eve of St. Agnes, um, some of you may know, I'm sure. It's a hugely long poem. It's about 90 stanzas, each of 15 lines. We should be finished by about ten past four. <laughs> no, we only had to study the first three verses of the Eve of St. Agnes. And uh, as I say, um, my parents were not really literary, uh, but my mum did love this poem. And when I told her we were studying it, she straight away started quoting bits of this poem to me. And so it's the only time, really, that my mother has ever shown a great interest in, in poetry to me. So this always reminds me of her. Uh, but also, it's just quintessentially... Uh, Cold. I mean, I don't think anybody has ever described cold as well as Keats does here. The Eve of St. Agnes, 
uh, takes place on the November the 25th, I think, every year. And it's a wonderful story, but this is the beginning of it. And I think also now, living back in, in, rural, uh, in a rural area, it, it rings out even more. And I'm sure if any of you live like me in a, in a black and white house, you'll know what real cold is like in the winter. <laughs> so first three standards then of uh, the Eve of St. Agnes to get us underway by John Keats. St. Agnes Eve, ah, bitter chill it was. The owl, for all his feathers, was a cold. The hare limped, trembling through the frozen grass. And silent was the flock in woolly fold. Numb were the beadsman's fingers while he told his rosary, and while his frosted breath, like pious incense from a censer old, seemed taking flight for heaven without a death, past the sweet virgin's picture, while his prayer he saith. His prayer he saith, this patient, holy man, then takes his lamp, and riseth from his knees, and back returneth, meagre, barefoot, one, along the chapel aisle by slow degrees. The sculptured dead on each side seem to freeze, imprisoned in black purgatorial rails. Knights, ladies, praying in dumb oratories, he passeth by. And his weak spirit fails to think how they may ache in icy hoods and mails. Northward he turneth through a little door, and scarce three steps, ere music's golden tongue flattered to tears this aged man and poor. But no, already had his death bell rung, the joys of all his life were said and sung. His was harsh penance on St. Agnes' Eve. Another way he went, and soon among rough ashes sat he for his soul's reprieve, and all night kept awake for sinners' sake, to grieve. Those are the first three verses of the Eve of St. Agnes. But yeah, as I said, that's, that's the bit my mother remembered, and I've always remembered that, and any cold night I always think the owl for all his feathers was a cold, the hare limped trembling through the frozen grass, and silent were the flock in woolly fold. I just think it's absolutely... Incredible, and it still, as I say, comes to mind now every time I think of a cold night. And I love that way. He said, the sculptured dead on each side seemed to freeze. So even the sculptured dead in their marble or stone seemed more cold than ever. Uh, it's, it's the coldest thing you can ever think of. And I, and I love it. And it does give me great comfort on cold nights in Ludlow. And I think, ah, even the owl will be a cold tonight. So, yes, that was my burgeoning. It made my interest in poetry burgeoning. <laughs> As a young man. And while we're talking about your family, you were a few years ago invited to do a Who Do You Think You Are? Yes. You found out some family secrets. What yes. would you like to reveal to us today? Uh, well, yeah, my father was born in Calcutta, which I'd always known in India, or Kolkata, as, as, as everyone says now. But uh, Calcutta, he always said. Um, so I knew that he'd been there. And I said to him, you know, why were your parents there, knowing a little bit about how? People are produced even as a seven or eight year old. I said, why are your parents there? And he said, oh, well, they just happened to be there. So I thought they'd gone there on holiday or something. <laughs> and it turned out when we did Who Do You Think You Are that they happened to be there uh, since 1751 uh, on my father's side. So it was quite a long-standing uh, uh, you know, place for them to be. And what had happened briefly was, I didn't know what Anglo-Indian meant, but we found out that the family were actually Anglo-Indian, which meant that 
particularly English and uh, Scottish and Irish, actually, hence the McGowan, uh, sailors were encouraged to go to India for, by the British to breed a new race because the Indians were mutinying against the British uh, and the British were often falling victim to heat and diseases. So the British government thought if we can create a new race which is loyal to the crown but also uh, able to survive diseases, uh, we would do that by intermarrying. So they paid Irish and Scottish soldiers to go there and to marry Indian women to create this race. And that really is what my father descended from. And he was the first McGowan to come to England since 1750 in his line. And I was the first to be born in that line in this country since 1750. So, But I asked the producers afterwards what that <coughs> made me, you know, because they said your ancestors are Irish uh, and Indian. And I said, what does that make me? And they said, well, a cork Asian. So... <laughs> Should we have another poem? <laughs> so yes. This was another poem that um, that had an influence on you at quite a young age. I love the story about where you put it. Yeah, uh, Thomas Hardy. I always loved his novels, and we studied them at school. Uh, Return of the Native, certainly. I went on to read his other books. And this has been a phenomenon of lockdown for me. Uh, I'm just almost old-fashioned now to talk about lockdown, but even this time last year, we were still really uh, locked down. And one thing I went straight back to, you know, people were saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, we can't do this, we can't do that. The bookshops were closed, and I suddenly thought, well, I've got all these books on my shelf that I've had for 30 years. I haven't read them in that time. So I went back and read most of my O and A-level texts to start. And then, But Hardy was somebody I went back to. And somebody we'll meet later on, uh, one of my neighbours was talking about Hardy's poetry, and I remembered that uh, I'd loved Hardy's poems when I was younger. One particularly which I'm not going to read because I know I won't even get through it without collapsing into a pool of tears, uh, but a poem in which he writes constantly, he was a man who used to notice such things. And this poem, uh, whose name I forget now, uh, but this refrain, he was a man who used to notice such things, he wrote about himself, really, and he's looking at his, his death and how he'll be remembered. And he doesn't say it's him, but it obviously is Hardy. And as a 15, 16-year-old, I read that and thought, gosh, I, I suppose I'm someone who notices things. People always used to say, why do you, how do you notice that? Or why, do you, why are you noticing that? And I think that's one of the things of any artist, writer, comedian particularly, observation. And so I immediately had this pull to Hardy, and because of his rural setting, and he was a romantic, and I loved everything about him. But this poem which is a lot shorter than that introduction, uh, is called An August Midnight. We did this again from this book when I was 14 years old. And um, what I love about it, it's, it I'll, I'll tell you a little about it, so there's no deny, uh, no um, obfuscation <coughs> as to what it's about. Hardy is writing a poem late at night in Dorset. He uses one word which you might not know, Dumbledore, which means spider in that area. Dumbledore is a spider. But he just talks about writing a poem late at night, which we were told by our uh, wonderful Welsh English teacher at the time was uh, a practice known as lucubration, or lucubration. Uh, but lucubration, which is the art of working at night, by, or by oil. So Hardy was lucubrating, as our Welsh English teacher loved to tell us, writing this poem, and all the insects come into the room. And uh, he just observes the insects and sees the insects. And this poem really... I've always had a love of nature, and it really stems the respect for nature, particularly from the very last line of this poem. So this is An August Midnight by Thomas Hardy. A shaded lamp and a waving blind and the beat of a clock from a distant floor. On this scene, enter, winged 
horned and spined, a long legs, a moth, and a Dumbledore. While mid my page there idly stands a sleepy fly that rubs its hands. Thus meet we five in this still place, at this point of time, at this point in space. My guests besmear my new penned line, or bang at the lamp and fall, supine. God's humblest they, I muse, yet why? They know Earth's secrets that know not I. And I, I just love that last line particularly. They know Earth's secrets that know not I. And I think, you know, as an environmentalist, as a human being, you know, you look at animals and you just think, how can we underestimate them? They know more about the world and the Earth and how to survive innately, somehow. How do they know these things? They know Earth's secrets that know not I. And I think our arrogance in thinking that animals are inferior you know, obviously they can't read poems or write poems, but the things that they can do, and I just think anybody who cannot be in awe of, of the way things are passed on to, to birds, to cats, to dogs, to insects, to dumbledores, how do they know how to do these things? Yeah. And that poem, really, that last line just gave me that respect straight away. And there are still a few places in the world where people live like that, close to the land. You know, I mean, thinking, for example, of Australia, you know, White people went to Australia and like, oh, here's this empty land. But actually, there were lots of people living there and making the most of it and in tune with the seasons and the land and all that sort of thing. So. Yeah, and the wisdom that's passed on from, from generation to generation in the countryside around here, you know, you spot things. Briefly, uh, I can go on a bit. Briefly, uh, in Kenya, I was doing a documentary for the BBC there, and we spent a week in the bush. And I was terrified of these animals, these huge animals, you know, and uh, doing my, my David Attenborough bit. But what was strange about being out in Kenya was the fact that uh, these animals, after a while, uh, we left them behind and went to Nairobi. And I got used to being in the bush. And going to Nairobi was terrifying and seeing people. <laughs> and I said this to somebody, and, and he said, this, this Kenyan fellow, he said, yeah, it's very different. He said, when you go into the city, because animals, you know what they're going to do. But humans, you never know what they're going to do. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, once you know what an animal does, and they said to me, you know, don't approach, if an, if an elephant approaches you, uh, get downwind of it. If a rhino approaches you, get up. If, um, what is it, if it's a buffalo approaches you, get in the car. <laughs> you just sort of had to remember these different things, and I was in this nightmare situation at night sometimes thinking, hang on now, if it's an elephant, I go, what do I do as an elephant? Goes to the left or the right? The left or the right? Right or left? And it makes such a difference, but they know, you know, don't look something in the eye, but you've got to get the right animal with the right thing. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like I came over all Eddie Izzard then. The elephant, the elephant's the eye, the elephant's, no, the tigers, don't look at the tiger, tiger. <laughs> And so that led to a love of nature, and you're now quite an activist, as you said, in the environment. You're an um, uh, ambassador to the worldwide... Well, oh. Just say WWF. WWF yeah. UK, somebody <laughs> give me a new set of teeth, please. And you were one of the group who bought this patch of land near Heathrow. Yes, uh, that was some time ago, 2010, we did that, to try and stop the Heathrow third runway. And successfully with Emma Thompson and Zach Goldsmith, um, we did that. Um, I have to say my environmental, my attitude to it has not changed at all, but my passion for campaigning has, and I'm very pleased to say and see other people, I don't agree with everything that Extinction Rebellion do necessarily, 
But at that time, I was desperate for people to be that active about it. And the sort of things we were doing at WWF, their research and their scientific knowledge and what they brought to public awareness was huge. But I did think, why are we not being more active? Why are we not garnering young people to do more things passionately and to reach out and to say there is an emergency happening? And I got a bit annoyed with, you know, just sign up and you'll get a cuddly tap panda. And I thought, that's, that's not what it's about. You know, besides you're making a cuddly panda, what's the point of that? You know, so I got a bit frustrated with that. But also I did get um, protest fatigue Mm. and uh, was aware that you know you, you keep trying to make a difference and maybe somebody says I Davina McCall said it to me once she said I recycle because of you and another actor I was sharing a dressing room with said I always turn my tap off because of you because I'd said about wasting water when you're cleaning your teeth and other people say I don't wash my clothes as much because of you and I go yeah I can tell that thank you <laughs> but yes. uh, it, you know so you, you're aware you do make a difference and I have made a difference and I wanted to use my status then if you like to make a difference and I'm pleased I did but now I'm pleased there are another generation doing it you can only do it for so long I saw Jonathan Porritt speaking recently and, and it's amazing he said he was 72 last week Jonathan and he's still doing it and uh, I really admire that but he too said you know it's you for the sake of a terrible pun he said it, pace of change is glacial. Yeah, and yeah. that's one thing that we can't be slow with because glaciers are melting faster than yeah, we are responding to them. We can't be glacial. So anyway, that's, that's my tub thumping. For the so day. the thing that I alluded to about where you put the poem, you told me that you used to pin it on the wall next to the footy pitch. Oh, yes, 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 yes. The August midnight, I, I actually realised I was maturing as an individual because I used to have pictures of Leeds United players all around my bedroom when I was a kid. And then suddenly, age 15, I wrote out that Thomas Hardy poem in August midnight and put it next to my bed. And I thought, ooh, look at me. <laughs> I'm an artist in the making here. And you actually went to university and read English. I went to university, read English, yeah, uh, really because of Hardy. That was what made me so interested in Keats, these two writers particularly. And also what made me read English was Michael Palin. I heard Michael Palin on Desert Island Discs. And um, he was still Roy Plumley then doing it. And he said, why did you choose to do English? Uh, boy from Sheffield, going to came Oxford, I think. Why did you choose to do English? And Michael Palin said, because I realised that doing a degree in English literature was the least amount of work you could do while at university for three years working out what you really wanted to do. <laughs> I thought, that's the degree for me. So that's why I did it. It wasn't really a love of literature. It was just, well, I quite like it. And I'll work out then, like Michael Palin said, what I want to do next. But while I was there, I was introduced to more poetry. And should I do the next one? Um, John Donne. Uh, we were thrown, a lot of poets were thrown at us at Leeds. And a lot of people came to my course from other schools, knowing so much about poetry. And I really didn't. They talked about Larkin, they talked about uh, Yeats, and they talked about all these poets that they'd read, studied, in more depth than just reading three verses of Eve of St. Agnes <laughs> and going, oh, that's a nice way to say something's gold. Um, but John Donne I really responded to, particularly this one poem called The Sun Rising. Now, this poem of Donne's, uh, I'm sure some of you will know it, but it really sums up for me life as a student uh, I'm going to embarrass myself here in front of my wife, who you'll meet later on. But this was all about those times when I was with my first girlfriend, and you would, as I'm sure we all did, please help me out with this, <laughs> at university, you spent the day in bed when you should have been in lectures. You spent the day there, just the two of you, you know, in the ensemble sheets, as uh, Hamlet put it. You would be there all day, and that's, that was your world. That was your world, and you didn't care about anything else. It was the most wonderful experience, which I hope 
we've all been through. Um, and done. I read this poem, and, I, and lots of his poems, I thought, what's that about? Blake as well. We did that, Blake. And I thought, what's that about? And then suddenly you find a poem written in, I don't know when this was written, 1670, 17-something? Uh, and there it was. And I thought, this is exactly what I'm doing now. This is my life now. And I think when you find that in a poem, it's, it's thrilling. So this, this sort of summed up my student life and love, if you like. The Sun Rising by John Donne. Oh, I do need my glasses for this because it's a really small <laughs> copy. No kidding. The Sun Rising. Busy old fool, unruly sun, why dost thou thus through windows and through curtains call on us? Must to thy motions lovers seasons run? Saucy, pedantic wretch, go chide late schoolboys and sour apprentices. Go tell court huntsmen that the king will ride. Call country ants to harvest offices. Love, all alike, no season knows, nor clime, nor hours, days, months, which are the rags of time. Thy beams, so reverend and strong, why shouldst thou think I could eclipse and cloud them with a wink, but that I would not lose her sight so long. If her eyes have not blinded thine, look, and tomorrow late tell me whether both the Indias of spice and mine be where thou left'st them or lie here with me. Ask for those kings whom thou sawest yesterday, and thou shalt hear all here in one bed lay. She is all states, and all princes I, nothing else is. Princes do but play us. Compared to this, all honours mimic, all wealth alchemy. Thou, son, art half as happy as we, in that the world's contracted thus. Thine age asks ease. And since thy duties be to warm the world, that's done in warming us. Shine here to us, and thou art everywhere. This bed thy centre is, these walls thy sphere. Thank you. So after Leeds, you went to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. Yes. And then was it straight after that you started gigging as stand-up? Yes. At Guildhall, as it, at many drama schools, they didn't really want you to perform anything until you'd finished the three years. The feeling was that you would curse the training if you went off. Uh, but I couldn't resist it. I'd been at university for three years. I'd been at Guildhall for two of the three years. And I was thinking, just let me perform in front of somebody, please. So I started doing stand-up comedy before I'd left. And um, straight away, it seemed to work quite well. And um, it was the voices, you know, people... Uh, I was going to do some of the voices I did then, and, and I suddenly realised most of them are now either um, besmirched with <coughs> allegations of sexual impropriety <laughs> or um, banned. Most of them are dead. Um, 
But uh, well, somebody I can do who I, who has, hasn't yet been besmirched was was Trevor Brookin, who at the time was uh, you know he was uh, on the uh, football programs all the time, and uh, Trevor was somebody I did a lot of, and uh, people always seem to enjoy that one, you know, particularly in the back in the late eighties. Um, but it really gave me a, an in, being uh, what they would call in those days a special act, being an impressionist was a special act. Was but, your voice is something you could always do? Is it one of those stories that you did it to stop the bullies at school or what? No, I was the bully. <laughs> so, uh, I did it to bully people. No, I wasn't. I wasn't the bully. Um, no, what happened actually was my mother uh, taught, she was born, born and brought up in this area in, in Evesham and uh, Honeybourne, Littleton over there. And uh, she always at mealtimes, our mealtimes were an absolute delight as children um, because mum would come back from school teaching little ones, as she always called them. They were about five years old, the reception class. And she would always take off the parents, the children, the other teachers. So it was just this, like, showtime, you know, where she'd say, oh, do you know what happened today? Mrs. Monk came in, Esther's mum, and she said, oh, Marion, oh, you are doing well with our Esther. Oh, she ain't half happy with you because she didn't like school before she'd come to you. She hated it, but you, oh, she didn't half love your classes. <laughs> And this would just go on and on, or she'd do other teachers, and there was a chap who had a big lisp, and she'd say, and he said, oh, Marion, you're, you're, the way you teach science to your children is absolutely inspirational. So all this would, we just love it. And then my sister was three years older than me. She'd then do the voices of the teachers at school. We had a great teacher from Castleton in Derbyshire called Mr. Brown, who taught us French at Evesham High School. And Mr. Brown uh, once said of my sister, he said, you came a going at the light of my life. <laughs> And these little phrases just get followed down. And she did this great impression, my sister, of this teacher. What was his name? Mr. Freeman, I think, who taught RE. Maybe it wasn't Mr. Freeman, but it was somebody who taught RE at our school. And he didn't like my sister, and he just once said, Confound you, girl! <laughs> and this became another um, thing that we'd say all the time, which, Confound you, girl! And she'd always pull this dreadful face. But to this day, she still does great impressions of everybody. To the point, my <coughs> sister, where... About 10 years ago or so, she had this woman, her, her boyfriend at the time was very poorly and died in the end, di diabetic uh, illnesses. And, uh, but they had a house person who'd come and help clean and, and look after him. And she, my sister used to do this impression about this, of this woman, uh, what was her partner called? Ray. And uh, she'd always say, oh yes, whatever it was. She came, she'd say to me, my sister, she came, she said, oh, we was in, down in the supermarket, weren't we, Ray? And we was walking along, weren't we, Ray? And we saw <laughs> Tony, didn't we, didn't we, Ray? Yeah, and we thought, oh, UK, didn't we, Ray? So <laughs> she used to do this every time I went home. I never met this woman. Then I'm at home, after about three years of hearing this impression, I'm in the supermarket shopping for my mum because she was getting more and more immobile. And I suddenly heard this woman go, well, we ought to get him that, didn't we, Ray? And I thought, that's, <laughs> that's Kay's cleaner. So she was that good that I recognised the impression, which is something I suppose that I take great delight in now. And do you know, Jill, I have to, because when I'm on stage, if people recognise the voice now, sometimes without seeing the programme, or, they, or knowing the name of the person, or they laugh because it's a funny voice, sometimes I have to take that now, because when I did my show, and the radio shows that you and I used to work on, everybody knew who John Peel was, or whoever it was, and we were you know, parodying at the time when you were doing all the, all the sound effects and I was doing the voices. And people wouldn't know who John Peel was, or they knew who, obviously, they'd know, they'd know Wogan. You know, but people knew all those people in those days, because Wogan was everywhere, and everybody watched him. Or if they didn't watch him on the telly, they listened to him on the radio. So people knew. They knew. They knew Parky. They knew absolutely everybody. I mean, Parky was the Churchill host. That was the program that we all watched. You know, in the seventies, not in the eighties when he wasn't on, but back in the nineties. And it was wonderful for me you know, to be interviewed uh, several times by the great Michael Parkinson. <laughs> but now people just—they barely. Know. I was on stage in Birmingham on Thursday night doing my 
best impression of Monty Don, local man, of course. Monty, not so far away, over in Lempster. And do, if you can tonight, go back and deadhead your agathantas. <laughs> because now is the perfect time to do that. And when you cut down your agathantas, make sure you cut them right down at the bottom of the stem. But you'll, you'll enjoy that. But these, this audience were 20. They didn't know who Monty Don was. <laughs> they didn't know what Gardener's World was. They didn't know what BBC Two was. <laughs> and some of them, honest to God, do not know what television is. They watch it on their tablet. They watch TikTok. They watch YouTube. And so now for the Impressionists, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult. And I think now if I was leaving drama school now with the talents I had then, there is no way. I could do impressions in front of people of that age. I don't know how anybody would do it. One of my favourite impressions of yours was of a, a radio producer who's since gone on to produce Graham Norton since he went to telly. And oh. I always felt it was, such a, it was such a good impression and almost nobody would know how good it was because almost nobody except people who knew him personally would, would know Of that. you and you, and Magnuson, you're talking about, aren't you? Yes, you and That's always quite frustrating, to be honest with you, when you do somebody that nobody else knows. I used Believe to be... Believe me, that's really good. <laughs> I used to be in the late 90s and when we were on the, on the TV doing the big impression. Pop, popular culture was everything that the show was about and had to be. We were, we were part of popular culture. We were on BBC One, prime time. So what we were representing was prime time culture. And I was all over it and loved it. You know, I was watching EastEnders and watching Dot Cotton and I quite enjoyed watching EastEnders, not just for Dot, but for all the storylines as well. It was wonderful. And I knew that I could then cross-refer and say, well, actually, Dot based her character, which was the joke we used to do, on Steptoe, because she sounds just like Steptoe, doesn't she, <laughs> And people knew that, because that was, you know, that was still just about popular culture. I was watching, you know, Kilroy in the mornings. How does he feel? How does he feel? And I knew that was popular culture, and, and Hugh Edwards was reading the news, and we'd always do that, and that was not exactly popular popular culture, but everybody knew that she was a newsreader on BBC One. But now, to get back to your comment about Jörn Magnusson, uh, who only you and I know, I'm listening to, I've got so interested in piano music, and listen to Radio 3, and just as in the old days I would do the programmes that I watched, now the people I can impersonate generally are Radio 3 presenters. <laughs> so I've become interested in unpopular culture. <laughs> and nobody knows these people who I do. And I do do um, a very good impression of Ian Skelly, That's one of the presenters on Well, Thank you very much. You obviously know Ian personally, probably. And also Tom Service, who you may have heard on Radio 3, trying his best to make anybody interested in classical music. And that is my mission, and I will desperately desperately make you interested in this music if it kills me. <laughs> and I do him and um, someone called Michael Barclay, who you may know, Michael Barclay, who has been presenting Private Passions on Radio 3 on a Sunday morning for over 20 years. But obviously, from the response to that, nobody in this room knows who Michael <laughs> Barclay is. But you, watch, you listen to Desert Island Discs on Radio 4 and then you switch over to Radio 3. It's on straight after for Private Passions. Brilliant. Yeah, but he's, he's the only person, Michael Barclay, that I know of also who speaks in 4-4 four, four time. <laughs> but generally, oh, you got that. But you see, generally, it's, it's now, as I say, the things I'm interested in are no longer popular culture. So, um, but I wouldn't, I, I watched some popular culture last night for the first time for a long time. And I Not saw, Love Island. Yeah, I slipped, I slipped onto Love Island for about five minutes of that I could take and I'd find a bit of naked attraction for about a minute and you think this is popular culture and I hadn't watched these programs I've been busy in the latest show with Mo Gilligan and I just thought I can't watch these programs and if now the job was to reflect popular culture but that's aging isn't it I was saying to my wife the other day this is a huge digression I'll get back to it but um, I used to love watching Victor Meldrew 
And that, that was one of the impressions I used to do in my act years ago. I haven't done it for a long time, mind you, but I used to love watching Victory. We all love Victory. We thought this great program about this man who gets annoyed by everything. Isn't it fantastic that he would get so annoyed by things? And then I said to my wife just the other day, because I found myself sounding like Victor Meldrew on, it used to be a weekly basis, then it was a daily basis, and now it's all the bloody time. <laughs> and I constantly hear myself say, these young people today throwing their litter out of car windows and look at all their graffiti over there, and why do these people not smile at you in the street anymore? And why can't they say sorry? And when you travel by train, why does nobody think it's a problem when they not only talk on the phone, but you can hear the other person on the other end of the phone talking on the phone? And all these things, they wind me up. But I realized that Meldrew wasn't just an old bloke. He's somebody who's seeing the world change around him. And when you see that, and it's you, now 57 I am, I'm the age Meldrew was when he retired at the start of that series. And you think, yeah, I understand how even more how brilliant that program was because it showed the fractious, fractured and fractious nature of the world and aging and what generations are. And now, I, I, you know, as I say, I can't reflect popular culture anymore because I can't bear to immerse myself in it. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, oh, we're going to run out of time for poems. Ooh, so I'm going to bring we're you right. back to your early career because yes. that's where the next poem comes in. Yes. So I was very lucky uh, when I started off on the stand-up circuit to work with some of the comics who've gone on to do such wonderful things like Joe Brand and I were starting off together and um, people of that ilk. Um, Frank Skinner was around and we were doing lots of gigs together and you got to watch Frank working at, at quite close quarters, really. <laughs> but I also worked with... Uh, you know, Jack D and all those people, that, we were that sort of class, if you like, that, 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 that generation. Uh, but several poets then, and I know there are still poets now, Tim Keyes does his stuff, and other poets, I'm sure, on the circuit that I don't know of. But I was very lucky to work with John Hegley a lot, who I know has been here, here earlier on today. I can feel, <coughs> I can feel John in the building. Um, and I got to hear a lot of John's poems a lot and loved them. Um, but I read some of those and I thought, shall I do one of them? And I think a lot of John's poems work so well because of him. Yeah. And I'm not saying that they don't work without him, but he just sells them so well and tells them so well. But Henry Normal was somebody... Who, who some of you might have seen here three or four years ago. If you haven't and are not aware of Henry Normal, I would go so far as to say I think Henry Normal is the best poet this country has produced in the last 40 years. He's on tour at the moment, and he's, he does this occasional series on Radio 4, and there was one last week, so you can get that on BBC Sounds, um, A Normal Community. Yes, he's done a lot of series now, I'm pleased to say, late, lately, and you've worked on some of them. Henry's from Nottingham. He started off as a stand-up comic. He did some very, very funny short poems. I was introduced to him by a mutual friend uh, in the <coughs> early 90s. And a lot of his poems were very short, very crude. I'm trying to find a quick one, but I can't see a quick one. Um, but they were, they, were, they were just sort of, as he would say, knob jokes, basically, just knob jokes. And they were very quick. But what Henry would always do in his sets is that he would end them, as he still does now, by doing something which went right through your heart. And you think, I can't believe I've been sucked into this world of silly little jokes that happen to rhyme. And then suddenly he'd do something, you go, oh! And he still does it all the time. Yeah, when he goes into a poem, oh. you never know whether it's going to be a funny little thing or one of those. And also, I think, as a stand-up comedian, he also wrote the first two or three series of The Royal Family. He was one of the instigators, and you can, I think you can see the difference when Henry comes off it, because there's fewer jokes. He loves a pun. Um, but uh, Henry's poems, this is the first one I'm going to read you now, the first one I was ever aware of, of this style of poetry, which just broke my heart. But as a stand-up, I was going to say, when you write poems, and I'm going to inflict two of mine on you later on, you work backwards, because you think of the punchline. And Henry's, 
here, the, the last line just kills me. Um, the rest of it, this is not one of his better poems at all, but it's just the one that I came to first. <coughs> I still like it, it's still very good, but it's the ending that just kills you. So this, uh, in my impression of Henry Normal, who's from Nottingham, it's a very strong accent, is a poem by Henry from this book here, which you can get somewhere or other, called A More Intimate Theme by Henry Normal from Nottingham. Now he's, what, 62, 63, 64, Something maybe? Something like that, yeah. Sound like I'm uh, selling him off, 62, 63, 64. <laughs> this is called The House Is Not The Same Since You Left. The house is not the same since you left. The cooker is angry, it blames me. The TV tries desperately to stay busy, but occasionally I catch it staring out of the window. The washing up's feeling sorry for itself again. It sits there saying, what's the point? What's the point? The curtains count the days. Nothing in the house will talk to me. I think your armchair's dead. The kettle tried to comfort me at first, but you know what its attention span's like. I've not told the plants yet. They still think you're on holiday. <laughs> the bathroom misses you. I hardly see it these days. It still can't quite believe you didn't take it with you. The bedroom won't even look at me. Since you left, it keeps its eyes closed. All it wants to do is sleep, remembering better times, trying to lose itself in dreams. It seems like it's taken the easy way out. But at night, I hear the pillows weeping into the sheets. And I just love that last line. And I think we've all been there in our younger times when somebody moves out and, you know, it just encapsulates that so well on those last two lines. But at night, I hear the pillows weeping into the sheets. I would give anything to write stuff like that. So, yeah, Henry Normal. If you don't know him, you're in for a huge treat. Fantastic. E. Cummings. We have him next. E. e. Cummings. This is a very short poem uh, with a very short introduction. I... Should have put poetry behind for a long time when I went on to do my TV show, because I used to do, as you know, 20 years ago, I was here doing some of my pretty awful poetry, but I just fancied myself. I was so fascinated by the art of making people laugh through poetry and trying to do what Henry and John did, because I loved what they did so much, John Hegley. And I thought, can I do that? Can I? And there are certain jokes you realise, if you do them as a poem, somehow the rhythm makes them work. For instance, uh, I did a, a, a very short poem, about, a joke about uh, Michel Pfeiffer. And I did it as a joke. It never really got anything more than a groan. So I turned it into a quatrain in 1993, and I still do it now in my live show because it works so well. It goes like this. When Michelle Pfeiffer goes to the loo, she doesn't make a noise like me and you. The truth of the matter is, you see, Michelle Pfeiffer has a silent P. <laughs> <laughs> You can hear the Henry Normal influence. You can in hear that the Normal well. and the Hegley influences in it. But it was just that here's a joke. I did the joke. I said, Michelle Pfeiffer doesn't make a noise when she goes to the toilet. She's got a silent pee. <laughs> you do it as a poem, and suddenly you, people admire the construction. You think, this is a great way of hiding. <laughs> and people expect it, and they accept it as well. They, they wait for that rhyme. They see it coming ahead of you, and people like it. So, But then I left poetry behind, and it was in the time of doing my TV show, I suddenly read E.E. E. Cummings for the first time. And this one poem just seemed to sum up everything about the way I live my life, I suppose. And again, it's one of those moments. I was about 40 by the time I read this and just thought, that's me. And I wanted it painted all around my kitchen and looked into it. And uh, my girlfriend at the time said, it's just going to look naff. So uh, I'm glad I didn't do it. But you never know. One day I might still get it painted around the kitchen. Have it tattooed the one line down your arm, perhaps. <laughs> tattoos don't start to talk to me about <laughs> tattoos, do People who have tattoos, they think they're artists. They're not artists. They're just easels. Yeah. 
Come back, Victor Meldry. Back to Victor Meldry. Okay, so this is E.E. E. Cummings. Uh, it doesn't have a title, so uh, typically. So I think the first line is the title. As I say, this sort of sums up me. I hope you, you enjoy it. It's just a very short poem of 12 lines. I'm going to need my glasses because it's small again. May my heart always be open to little birds who are the secrets of living. Whatever they sing is better than to know. And if men should not hear them, men are old. May my mind stroll about hungry and fearless and thirsty and supple. And even if it's Sunday, may I be wrong. For whenever men are right, they are not young. And may myself do nothing usefully and love yourself so more than truly. There's never been quite such a fool who could fail, pulling all the sky over him with one smile. Uh, we have to compress quite a lot of your life here. Because, yes, um, certainly. We'll compress. We've got lots of treats still in store. Yes, here they come. Um, so uh, we've said actor. In fact, I first met you as an actor. Mm. I remember turning up in the studio and looking at all the actors gathered on the other side of the window, and there was this man in a green jacket, and he was there to play Paul Pennyfeather oh, in Decline yeah. and Fall. Yeah. There have been about two more adaptations of Radio 4 of it since then. Yeah. Back away. Never quite as good. <laughs> Never, never. And From a sound point of view. Absolutely. And um, you've directed as well, and obviously acted in the, in there as well as on telly in the West End and all that sort of thing, but it's the directing that I think brings us to our next piece. Yes, I wanted to direct something, and I went to my old drama school at Guildhall, and they very kindly said, we'd like you to direct, and they pushed me towards doing a, a play by Noel Coward called Semi Mond, principally because it has a cast of 30, which you can't do anywhere. Uh, but at drama school, you've got 26 in a year. Perfect. Uh, four people double up, obviously. Um, if my math is right. Anyway, <laughs> we did Semi-Monde. And I suddenly initially thought, coward? No, coward. Old hat. Then I was pushed to read his plays. And I thought, no, they are absolutely amazing. Sheridan Morley wrote of coward that all his work was about the impossibility and necessity of love. Which I loved. The necessity and impossibility of love. And uh, it's trials and tribulations. I then went on to read his poems at the suggestion of Alan Brodie, who looks after his estate, Coward's estate. And Alan Brodie said, read these poems. Um, poems. He's Scottish. Poems. Um, he said that he, he never wanted them published, but they are now published. And he never called them poems. He called them verses. Uh, and I read them and realized that they were, on the whole, Coward's poems, so incredibly observant. He was a man who used to know such things, uh, like Hardy. And they were almost like little scenes, a lot of them. So my wife and I put together a show in 2009, which we toured on and off for two years, using Coward's poems as little vignettes, if you like. And uh, we took a lot of them then into song, because so many of Coward's songs, again, are so neglected. We think of the Rumpty Tum songs of Mad Dogs and Englishmen, but the lyrics and the tunes in them, we changed some of the, 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 the tempi. But it became a really enjoyable show to do, and I think we showcased Coward in a different way. So I'm very pleased now. Uh, we did it in the accents of the time, so this may sound a little old-fashioned now. Uh, but I'm going to now welcome to the stage my wife, Charlotte Page, and we will perform for you Coward's poem, Reunion. It's lovely to have you back. She said. But the tone was pitched too high. 
He, sitting opposite, crumbled a roll made like a crescent with black seeds on it, lit a cigarette and tried to smile. A gesture devastating in its hopelessness. A gallant effort, gallantly designed to reassure her. An abortive, brave attempt to cut at least a temporary clearing in the surrounding jungle. She smiled back, seeing him for an instant suddenly, clearly and vividly, as he once had been before the cruel separating years had altered everything. She turned away, fumbled in her bag. To hide her tears. Outside the open window, light summer rain had left a sheen on the Soho street. Reflecting moon and stars and neon lights at the feet of strange characters shuffling back and forth, pausing at corners to whisper in alien tongues and then retire back into the shadows. Inside the restaurant. Inside the restaurant. Yes, I've got The customers this. sat. Thank you. Inside the restaurant, <laughs> the customers sat encased in impersonal synthetic coziness. There were small red lamps on all the tables. And rather untidy vases of anemones. Whenever the service door swung open, there was the smell of garlic and frying fat and the noise of banging crockery in the kitchen. When the maitre d'hotel bought the menu, the atmosphere eased a little. Because there was something to say. He was sallow and swarthy. The maitre d'hotel. With sadness in his chocolate-coloured eyes. He was sallow and swarthy, with, with sadness in his chocolate-coloured eyes. Suddenly, she longed to catch at his coattails and cry. In Italian, of course. Cheer up. Cheer up. You'll be going home someday. Home to your own place. Your own familiar, unhygienic village. <laughs> with the olive groves rolling up to the sky, and the campanile, and the piazza, and where people you really know pass by. But he took their order and went away. And at their table, the silence lay. And the evening stretched before them. Bleak. Desolate. And grey. With so much. So much. So much to think. And, and so, so little, little. So little. To say. Charlotte Page, then. Uh, 
there's another one shortly. Um, but while we're on your subject of your wife, yes, your father-in-law's a poet. My father-in-law is, is a poet, and I'm sure there are plenty of people in this room who, who've started writing poetry or, or may be considering doing so. Uh, my father-in-law had never written anything until the age of 87. And during the start of lockdown, he suddenly, I don't know how he found more time on his hands age 87 than he'd had when he was 86, but he started writing these poems, I think because there was no cricket on. Um, and uh, he sent the first few through to me and said, yeah, what do you think of these poems, Ali? And uh, I was really astonished because, you know, sometimes people send you a poem and it, with all respect, it's the sort of thing you'd get in the local newspaper that might win a poetry competition and it's rhyming and everything else. I, I remember somebody um, with this absolutely wonderful line. Somebody sent me a book of their poems, which needn't be a gift. <laughs> but on this case... Yeah. On so this Brian, uh, I read these poems straight away, thought, there's some merit here, and I encouraged him. And uh, at the age of 89, two years later, he's now written over 300 poems. Wow. Uh, and in fact, at the back, I'll be selling some uh, CDs of my piano music after the show, which we might talk about in a little while if there's time. Um, but uh, we also published 89 of Brian's best poems at the age of 89, and we thought it was a great title, 89, for the 89 poems of an 89-year-old. Yes, and Adele can do it. Adele can do it. But I also mentioned this to Roger McGough, because oh. uh, I know Roger a bit, and uh, we were hoping to get a quote from Roger, and he, he said, quite understandably, I don't do quotes, otherwise everybody would. And I said, oh, we're calling it 89, just so you know, 89. And he said, oh, I did the very same thing when I was 80. I went, oh, right, OK. <laughs> so there is a book of 80 poems by Roger McGough, age 80. But we did 89. Anyway, so I'm going to read a couple of Brian Page's poems for you now, because I just think uh, they, they touched my heart. and. Uh, see what you think of them and uh, may they inspire you and should you want to buy the other, the other 87 there at the back in the book. So this is the first one that Brian sent me and uh, like I say, it, uh, it has a knockout last line, I think, which is always the, the punchline that appeals to me. It's called The Other Side. I have to do it in Brian's voice. <laughs> oh no, oh sorry. Oh my, that's nearly done. That clogged frenetic life I led and now I'm nearly gone. It's peace I seek after the shortness left, the diagnosis known, no time to tidy, my family bereft. They too will rush and scurry and make ends meet and to their deathbeds come, and I will greet them on the other side of when. I just love that line, as what's said to me, you're a poet, on the other side of when. You think that, that's, you can't, whatever we think poetry is, I think, you know, and that, there's many definitions of that, but that line is undoubtedly a poetic line. I thought, this, this person has a poetic soul if you're writing that, on the other side of when. So this is the 46th poem. Now we're going to fast forward to uh, in the book. Uh, this has slightly more humour to it, but again, I just loved it. It's called An Ending by Brian Page, father of Charlotte, aged now 89. An Ending. Shades of the past. I've just used the last fraction of the soap bought from that kid who pestered us on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius. <laughs> I'd said, no, please go, but he didn't. And so you had to buy the clumsy purple block, too, if I remember, the chiming of a clock. The soap sat inside the wardrobe at abode after abode after abode. Until washing my hands one day, the last of our old soap drained away. Darling, I said, reach out the soap we bought back from Italy. We ought to use it, finally. Looking back, I never knew that that Vesuvius soap 
would outlast you. Oh. <clears throat> I should say, uh, and you'll see this if you read the book, there are several poems that he writes from a forward position, so his wife is still very much with us. So please don't think, <laughs> poor Brian, writing on his own and his wife died with the Vesuvius soap, it kills me. It's an image, she's still there. The she's poem, still there. The poems are wonderful. Charlotte, how good is the impression? Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Which is scary. Oh, yeah, they would say you marry your father, don't they? Let's <laughs> not go there. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> sorry, sorry everybody, sorry for that image. Um, so a couple of years ago you moved to Ludlow. Yes. And is that where you met our next guest? Yes, I moved to Ludlow and I said earlier on I'd started rereading things from my youth uh, before we moved uh, during the early days of lockdown. So I was interested in Hardy and I'd started reading his poems again. And then um, I was told that our next door neighbour by the previous owners was a former actor. They said he's 91 years old. Uh, and uh, he used to act all around the country doing rep and worked on the BBC, and uh, you'll get on very well with him. And sure enough, we met over the garden wall very early on and started talking about the poems of Hardy, and then we started talking about Philip Larkin, and then he said, uh, I actually recorded uh, some um, poetry alongside Larkin in a BBC broadcast. Would you like to hear it? So uh, I'm very pleased to say that on that basis, and we'll shall hear more about Larkin and more about that uh, recording and more about uh, his life now from my 92-year-old neighbour as he is now. Please welcome the wonderful Gary Watson. Yeah. <laughs> the stage is yours, Gary. Tell us about what Follow we're about that. To hear. <laughs> what, a, what a chance with him. <laughs> Tell us a bit about. Uh, we're going to hear the Whitson Weddings in a minute, aren't we? So, but before that, talk to us about, uh, well, what you know of the Whitson Weddings and also a bit about Larkin. Yes, the Whitson Weddings, um, by the way, it's so good to see such a young audience here. <laughs> <laughs> it means that they will have heard of John Betjeman and Philip Larkin and perhaps Louis McNeese, whom I shall touch on. Um, the Whitson Weddings was published in 1964. 1964, a slim volume of verse by Faber and Faber. But you know, um, I'm told that if I'd kept the dust cover, it would be worth a thousand pounds. You miss out on some things, don't you? <laughs> um, the Whitson Weddings, it's, for those who don't know it, it's such a well-known poem, you always assume people know it. Is tells the Larkin narrates in his extraordinary conversational style a journey from Hull, where he was the university library, to King's Cross Station. And it's what he saw on that journey, uh, which he records with great wit and interest, never subjective evaluations, but just observations of the countryside and, and the events which you'll hear about in a moment. Um, and he, when Larkin knew it was going to be read on the air for the first time, which was a great privilege for me, I was booked by Anthony Thwaite, who was a producer uh, and a poet himself. And his, he shared a, um, uh, a desk with Louis McNeese, no less. So two distinguished poets employed by the BBC as producers. Those were the days. <laughs> um, and Larkin 
was a, a, an extremely careful craftsman. He, he intended every word he ever wrote. He would keep words in waiting for years until he found how to continue a certain idea. So Larkin actually wrote to Anthony Thwaite, the producer, and said, I hope the reader will not find it too difficult to read the end of the poem. Now, the end of the poem is a, very, a line that's become very famous, uh, somewhere becoming rain. You probably know the line. It refers to uh, a, a flight of arrows shot into the air. The intriguing thing is that Larkin then said where he'd got the idea from. Um, I go back to the 40s, so I remember at school seeing Henry V, Laurence Olivier as Henry V, and the scene in the Battle of Agincourt when all the English archers lean back, whole cried on them, using the English cross longbow, the state-of-art weapon of the time. And there's a moment in which the whole lot is released into the air and come to earth. And that's what Larkin used at the end. It's worth remarking on this before trying to read the poem because it comes very suddenly at the end, that line, talking about um, a sense of falling. And make, Larkin makes no judgment or assessment of the people he's talking about, the, the married couples, but he has this feeling at the end, a sense of falling, an ambiguous, ambiguous idea. Does he mean, is it positive? Is, is falling rain going to fertilise or is it going to be tears? So um, that is what Larkin sent as a note and I'm happy to say he was pleased with the way it was read. Shall I now read the poem? Yes. Who read it on the, on the day? He read it or you read it? He read it, didn't he? Um, in the broadcast. In the broadcast, yeah. I read it. I you was read the it. first person to read it, which was which Gosh. was a wonderful thing for me. Yes. And a great, uh, you know. And Betjamin, before you read, Gary, Betjamin actually introduces you on this broadcast. Which no, I no, no, heard. no. That's another scene oh, that's altogether. A ah. <laughs> when I was later worked with John Betjamin and Larkin appeared, which was extremely rare. We may as well that's, say about this yeah. now. He never. He shunned public appearances. Went to America. Wouldn't have press interviews. He was so English-English, as indeed this poem is, is so nostalgically English. And um, he then was brought along by John Betjeman, who would charm anybody into doing anything. And he said, dear, he called about Larkin, he called him, dear old, dear old thing, has come along here. And uh, he's, I hope he's going to read what is one of the greatest poems, recent poems, The Wits and Weddings. And Philip has made this journey here today, from Hull Paragon to King's Cross. And, and will you read it, Philip, he said. And Larkin came to the microphone and said, I have never read a poem in public before. And if I have anything to do with it, it'll be the last time. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Larkin. But he did read it and he read it beautifully. Now it's my turn. The Wits and Weddings by Philip Larkin. That Whitson, I was late getting away. Not till about 1.20 on the sunlit Saturday did my three-quarters empty train pull out. All windows down, all cushions hot, all sense of being in a hurry gone. We ran behind the backs of houses, crossed a street of blinding windscreens, smelt the fish dock. Thence, 
The river's level drifting breads began where sky and Lincolnshire and water meet. All afternoon through the tall heat that slept for miles inland, a slow and stopping curve southwards we kept. Wide farms went by, short-shadowed cattle and canals with floatings of industrial froth. A hothouse flashed uniquely, hedges dipped and rose, and now and then a smell of grass displaced the reek of buttoned carriage cloth until the next town, new and nondescript, approached with acres of dismantled cars. At first, I didn't notice what a noise the weddings made, each station that we stopped at. Sun destroys the interest of what's happening in the shade, and down the long, cool platforms, whoops and skirls, I took for porters, larking with the males, and went on reading. Once we started, though, we passed them, grinning and pomaded, girls in parodies of fashion, heels and veils, all posed irresolutely, watching us go as if out on the end of an event, waving goodbye to something that survived it. Struck, I leant more promptly out next time, more curiously, and saw it all again in different terms. The fathers with broad belts under their suits and seamy foreheads. Mothers, loud and fat. An uncle, shouting smut. And then the perms, the nylon gloves and jewellery substitutes, the lemons, mauves and olive ochres that marked off the girls unreally from the rest. Yes, from cafes and banquet halls up yards and bunting-dressed coach party annexes, the wedding days were coming to an end. All down the line, fresh couples climbed aboard. The rest stood round. The last confetti and advice were thrown, and as we moved, each face seemed to define just what it saw departing. Children frowned at something dull. Fathers had never known success so huge and wholly farcical. The women shared the secret like a happy funeral. While girls, gripping their handbags tighter, stared at a religious wounding. Free at last, and loaded with the sum of all they saw, we hurried towards London, shuffling gouts of steam. Now fields were building plots and poplars cast long shadows over major roads, and for some fifty minutes that in time would seem just long enough to settle hats and say, I nearly died. A dozen marriages got underway. They watched the landscape sitting side by side. An Odeon went past, a cooling tower, and someone running up to bowl. And none thought of the others they would never meet, or how their lives would all contain this hour. I thought of London, spread out in the sun, its postal districts packed like squares of wheat. There we were aimed. And as we raced across bright knots of rail past standing pullmans, walls of blackened moss came close. And it was nearly done, this frail travelling coincidence. And what it held stood ready to be loosed with all the power that being changed can give. We slowed again, and as the tightened brakes took hold, 
there swelled a sense of falling, like an arrow shower sent out of sight, somewhere becoming rain. We were saying, weren't we, about Larkin at home, that that poem is so extraordinary in yes. that... It, I, I don't know how many... Actually, let's just see by show of hands, how many of you know that poem or have read that poem? Quite well, so, about 30%. Not too many, that's good. You, yeah. that's good. <laughs> but you'll, you'll know, and the others, I, I hope you'll want to go away and read it now, but when you see it on the page, you see that there is a line rhyme every other line, isn't it? It has a very complex line structure, and most precise. And why Larkin chose to do that with such a conversational style, I don't know. But he must have sat down and put A, B, C, D, E, F, and all the rhymes exactly. And he follows it religiously and carefully. And so often with rhymed verse, you think the rhyme just is a little bit contrived. One particular word at the end of a line. With Larkin, you never feel that. He seems to me perfect to select him his words and to, to fit in with the rhyme scheme he's devised, yes. And when you read it, obviously we hear some of those rhymes, but a lot of not them... Many, not many. Not many he wants brought out, which is the beauty of it. It reads almost like prose, and then when you go yes, back, you yes, see yes. the genius of it. Absolutely extraordinary. And some of the lines, again, I find this with most poetry, that ones I've written and certainly ones I've read and some I've read today, whenever I read a poem, I read it once to get the overall meaning. And then you have to go back yes, and back and yes. back. And with that one, it repays so much study. And I loved that line, which I'd never noticed before, how all their lives would contain this hour. Yes, would all contain this hour. And you think it means something. You have to think, what does that actually mean? And of course, it does mean that their wedded future is focused in this one time they came down on the train or they said goodbye to their relatives and so on. I love lines like, they sta the girls stared at a religious wounding. And uh, uh, the mothers who, um, what, what did he say? The mothers, um, what was he going to say about that? I've forgotten, sorry, never mind. That's all right. But there's so many little details as well, like yes. the, the hot cushions. The hot cushions. Of the trains. Of course, in those days, we had real trains. You could open the windows and look out. Do you remember the leather strap used to pull up to... People used to nick the yellow strap so you could no longer lift the window if it was down. But the one thing that kills me about listening to that poem is that I listen to it and think, what a beautiful evocation of, of an England that I, that I will never know and always wanted to know, that yes. pre-beaching era of the railways. And I look out, look out of that window, the, the window that he creates, and see all those wedding parties and think, how wonderful. Yes. And then what kills me is that now, in my Victor Meldrew way, when I take the train, <laughs> which I regularly do on a Friday, from Euston to Crewe to change to Ludlow, there's a lot of wedding people getting on hen people, and you go, oh, the noise of those people <laughs> and the weddings, and all these wedding people and their awful outfits, and you think, oh, no. it's, it's so hard. And I don't know if it's because the carriages were so more self-contained that perhaps they didn't intrude on you, but now if you see a stag party around, a hen party, anything to do with a wedding on a long train journey, you go, oh no. <laughs> but I will try and remember Larkin in future and go, now let's just, just, let's just observe. Let's be a man who notices such things and not somebody who complains about bloody everything. <laughs> anyway, have you any more anecdotes you want to throw into not the really, mix? No, not really. Because that's been absolutely wonderful. And to think that you worked with these, these, these great poets. Reading Karen. it 53 years ago for the first time on the radio is a bit extraordinary for me. What well, it must remain a wonderful honour to think you were the yes, first person who read was. that poem. And to work with Sir John Betjeman, I'm sure you all know and love. 
he was wonderful to work with. And um, he actually, we, we did a, a poetry prom. There was a series called Poetry Prom, devised by George Macbeth, another, another radio producer, another poet producer at the BBC. And he devised a series called Poetry Prom, in which Betjeman read, and a couple of actors read the, read the, the verse. I did a lot with Jill Balkan, who was the daughter of Sir Michael Balkan, of Ealing Comedy's fame, and the mother of Daniel Day-Lewis, no less. So she had to endure a triple Oscar-winning son <laughs> and his extraordinary success. And um, just Sir John was wonderful to work with, that's all. And you have a picture which I've got a little oh. display at the back. I'm going to be selling CDs and, and oh copies of Brian's books, but I think we should put your picture on there, not to oh, be sold. Uh, but that will be there to be <laughs> sold. Uh, but Gary will put his um, picture on there so you can see sure, Gary with sure. John Betjeman and, uh, and uh, Daniel Day Lewis, his mother as well. But Gary, thank you so much for reading that. It was been a great absolutely beautifully read. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, for the second time, we say, follow that. <laughs> yes, you've got to follow it, though, this time. Yes, you know, I've got to follow Thank it. Thank you time. so much, Gary. That was wonderful. Um, so, the, the last poet is Alistair McGowan. But before we hear his poems, um, we promised to talk to you about the piano. So, you've written and starred in three plays for BBC Radio 4 about Eric Satie. Did that, is that connected with you coming back to playing the piano? Yes. Um, it, it, strangely, the whole thing with Eric Satie, uh, who some of you may know or may not, I'm sure you'll know some of his music, the famous Gymnopédie, uh, which is possibly one of the greatest and most regularly played pieces of piano music uh, in the world now. He wrote it in 1888. Um, I actually had always loved his music and was drawn to that again by chance. I mean, what we experience as, as people, the art we experience is so often by chance. You stumble upon things. I first heard Satie's music in a... There was a series called Scene. I don't know if anybody remembers that. It was for children in the afternoons on BBC One, Scene. And I saw this drama with Diana Dawes, weirdly, in about 1973, set in Manchester in the back-to-backs. And they start, it was the most depressing thing. I remember at the time, it was so depressing, black and white. And then they played this piece of Satie. Um, and I just said to my mother, who was watching it with me, I said, what is that music? It's so wonderfully sad. I was eight years old. I loved sad things, <laughs> what can I say? Uh, and she said, oh, that's by Eric Satie. It's called Gymnopody. And... From then on, I had this love affair with, with Satie, but I didn't really establish it or you know, do anything with it until I was in my 30s. When I started to write a play about him, it was a film initially, I had big ambitions. I read a biography of his, and at the time I lived in Barnes in southwest London, and the first sentence of the book was, Eric Satie's parents were married in 1864 in St Mary's Church in Barnes. And I went, what? <laughs> so he's, his parents, he may even have been conceived uh, in the area where I lived. I mean, what were the chances of that? And weirdly, the second play I wrote for Radio 4 was about a different composer, actually, called John Field. And John Field was an Irish composer, 1782 to 1837. And he uh, never visited England except to sail from London to Russia, where he became famous and celebrated and brilliant. Uh, if you don't know his music, there's not much of it, but it is wonderful. The Nocturnes, John Field, he inspired Chopin. Uh, but John Field only ever came to England once, apart from that time, to visit his great friend and mentor, Muzio Clementi, and where did Clementi live? Evesham. 
So I'd been drawn to Sati, whose parents were married 100 yards from where I lived, and I'd been drawn to Field, who visited Evesham to visit Clementi, who lived 100 yards from where I lived in Elm Lodge in Evesham. It was quite creepy to find those two things out. But the, both the, those composers' uh, music I was drawn to, and I went back to playing the piano at the age of 49, having left it at the age of nine to pursue other interests, like tennis and girls and things. Um, and uh, so the, I, I went and did a live show playing, combining the comedy with some poetry, actually, latterly, uh, and, and the music. And I think it's a world first. Yeah. To go from an impression of Harry Kane, uh, suddenly, you know, I talked about him, so suddenly doing the, set a piece by you know, uh, John Field, I think was the world first, and then also to go from George Clark, of George Clark's Amazing Spaces, to George Gershwin, I think was also <laughs> a world first. So. But it's been, a, it's been a great experience doing that. And I can safely say there is nothing more terrifying than playing the p piano in public. It is, I don't know why I did it or wanted to do it. And I feel I may have done it for the last time. I stopped my tour about two weeks ago. And I might draw a line under it. I don't know. We'll see. It's a great incentive. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But in terms of nerves and stress, I've never known anything like it. And how professional pianists can play huge works like Rachmaninoff second and third and whatever else in the prom situation or on television, I mean, these people are just gods to me. And what's on the CDs that you've oh, got blimey. available? Uh, on the CDs, initially, the, part of the, uh, <coughs> image, uh, the uh, idea of the CDs was to, was to put on there fairly simple pieces, A, because I could play them, but B, because it might inspire people who'd always thought, well, I, I want to play, but it sounds so difficult. I wanted to say, this is music that is actually beautiful, but is, is not that difficult. And I wanted to call it Within Your Grasp and Sony wouldn't let me uh, because they wanted to, I don't know what they wanted to do, but we didn't, we didn't do that. So on there, there's some Satie, there's some Philip Glass, there's some Grieg, there's some Chopin, there's some Liszt, there's some Bach, there is Mompo, who's a, a Catalan composer, died in, in 1984, who's wonderful. Uh, and and uh, on the other one, there's pieces by uh, Tchaikovsky and uh, Jan Tiersen, who wrote the music to Amelie. Um, so it's quite a cross-section, but it's a very mellow mood. The whole thing's very mellow and accessible not just to listen to, but also to play. So I hope it will inspire people. And that's what I've had at the concerts, shows. A lot of people have said, you've inspired me to play. And that was the thing. I used to watch these pianists, great pianists, and think, I will never play as well as that. I won't bother. But I hoped when people saw me, they'd go, literally, without being too <laughs> modest, immodest, they, immodest, they'd say, you know, well, I could play that, so I will. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, because I think they are, they have to play the hardest thing to show how good they are. Whereas I don't have to do that. I can just play the beautiful things, I hope. Lovely. So those CDs are on sale at the back. That's the longest sale I've ever done for a CD. Very good, very good. And um, Alistair will be there to sign them for you. Yes. Um, so when we finish, which we'll do shortly, if you let him get to the back uh, before you move, that would be great. And I'm sure Gary would like happily ask any quest answer any questions you might have as well, but if you wanted to talk to Gary, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, that'd be lovely. So we're going to end with poems, with Alistair's poems. Um, yeah. So dare I? I feel awful. It felt like a great idea at the time to do my poems last, and after all we've heard, and especially Gary reading that, I think, how dare I? That's going but. to be wonderful. So um, we're going to finish on those words. So I will say before that, thank you all very much for coming, especially Gary and Charlie. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thanks to the stewards and the top tech team of Stuart and Bill. 
And thank you, Alistair, for sharing your Desert Island poems. Thank you. It's been wonderful. So, um, yeah, I probably wouldn't take these two with me, but I'll read them anyway. Uh, so I've, I've written a variety of things, not just the Michelle Pfeiffer nonsense you heard earlier on. Uh, this one, I, it, the gentleman who came 20 years ago may have heard me read this, because I haven't written much in the last 20 years, and I'd written this in 2001, I noticed. I wrote the date on the bottom. It's, I, I called it Moments, um, <coughs> and, and just changed the title today, because I was listening to Ian McMillan on The Verb on Radio 3, talking about poetry. And he said how powerful it was to call a poem by a one-word title. And even though it was called Moments, I thought it doesn't actually tell the story of what the poem is about. So I actually changed it today to What We Remember. So uh, I'll say no more. I'll just read it to you. It's called Now, What We Remember. I can see her now, timelessly lounging, lazy-eyed, on the happy bonnet of her dad's white car, back from a week in the States, her long brown legs tantalizing me that spiky summer evening in 1982. Suzanne, I can see her now, younger, me, playing idyllic tennis with another on dusty grass by the hot river, sweat soaking my back my brow, salting my smooth chin as the lemonade and lime in your tilted glass wet your mouth a tennis court away. I can see you now. You barely watched as I played on, distracted and attracted by your endless sticking legs, and I longed to lay my lips where the sun had kissed you all the week. Suzanne. And now I see her. 19 years on, more years passed than had passed then, both now on those courts again. She's moved back, I'm just visiting. Our paths meet anew on another simpler summer's eve. And after rusty forehands and cross-court pleasantries, I venture the memory I have carried ever since of a brown teenage girl on a white, tempting car, lazy-eyed. I can see it now, can't you? She doesn't remember. She teaches maths now. <laughs> and finally, um, this is a Meldrew moment. <laughs> I won't do it in the Meldrew voice, um, but as much as things change, and we have to accept that things change and things should change in many cases, the one thing I find very hard to come to terms with as a linguist is how language has changed and how language has changed so quickly in the last even four years. I don't know I say four, three, five, two. It's changed very quickly in a very short period of time and has become so American. And I know when I was growing up, people talked about the BBC English and the Queen's English, and now it seems that people talk E4 English. Hmm. Um, they are so obsessed with American television and Americanisms and whatever else. <coughs> the language has changed. I watched the program last night, and despite the fact that people don't pronounce T's and G's at the end of their words and use so many American phrases, or because of that, I couldn't understand a lot of what was being said. And I thought, I can't follow what you're saying. So anyway, I wrote this poem about few, six months ago, which I call Back in the Day. I don't say gotten. I still say got. I say someone's attractive, not that they're hot. I use a decimal point and never a spot. I say in the old days, like we did 
in the old days, not back in the day like they do today. I still say hello and never say hey. I watch a tennis match and not a match-up, and a mixture's a mixture to me, not a mash-up. In the restaurant, I say, can I please have, not can I get. I walk, I don't hike, and I'm never like, like. I have lots of these examples and not a bunch. I have my suspicions and never a hunch. I get goose pimples, not goose bumps. I don't wear sneakers, I still wear pumps. Things impact upon me, they don't just impact me. I don't have a gut, I've a digestive tract me. I can't call girls guys, guys are male in my eyes. I say once, not one time, and often's always often and never often times. I go to matinees on Saturdays, not matinees Saturdays. I'll drop in, I won't swing by your hood. When I'm asked how I am, I don't say I'm good. I'm from the West Midlands and just say, yeah, not bad. <laughs> How I wish this new language was all just a fad. But I don't get pissed about this stuff. No, I get properly pissed off. <laughs> I won't say the ocean when I've always said the sea. And a biscuit's a biscuit, not a cookie to me. I wear trousers, not pants. And as for ants, they are insects to me and not bugs. And well before COVID, I did not do group hugs. <laughs> my sis is my sister, and I can't say barista. I won't go to stores, I go to shops. And why use periods when there are still full stops? And I refuse to do upspeak because I wish English people just wanted to sound English. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.